This evening, I'm going to be getting to the next lesson, which is the peak of papal power. But before I do that, there's two more um, scholastics I have to talk about. Because remember how I ran out of time last time? So I'll blast through them. We finished Thomas Aquinas last time. Um, and so this time, uh, and I spent a lot of time on Aquinas. We went over actually a lot of scholastic thinkers. And so the two remaining ones are Scotus and Occam. So I'll begin with John Dunn's Scotus, life dates 1265 to 1308. He was born in Scotland and uh, he joined the Franciscan order, which is, remember, the opposing order to Aquinas's, which was the Dominicans. He studies at Oxford. He studied at Paris. He taught theology at Cambridge, Paris, and Cologne. Those are three very important schools of theology. He wrote two commentaries on Lombard's sentences. If you remember, Peter Lombard wrote the first systematic theology, and it became so standard that a lot of people after him started uh, using his sentences as the textbook for their theology classes. This guy's now writing commentaries on that. Now, what Scotus is most known for is actually opposing Thomas Aquinas. See, Aquinas was the most profound Catholic theologian of the time, and yet Scotus literally hated just about everything Aquinas taught. And so he dedicates his career to trying to debunk everything that Thomas Aquinas taught. And so, um, so I'm going to hit that in a moment, but I do want to say this also. He was a realist. If you remember a couple lessons ago, I talked about the difference between realism, which was more friendly to Plato, versus nominalism, which was more friendly to Aristotle. Aquinas tried to have it both ways. He tried to be a realist and a nominalist, which is hard. Um, some other guys are going to be total nominalists. Well, Scotus was a total realist, and that's one reason he's going to oppose Aquinas. Now, he argued that you need to separate philosophy from theology. See, Aquinas married the two, that, that the philosophy is the handmaiden of theology, and yet Scotus is saying, no, it can't even be that, because philosophy can't get you to God. It can only prove that there's an infinite being, but it doesn't tell you who the infinite being is. It doesn't tell you it's the Christian God. Only through the Bible, only through special divine revelation, could the human mind ever know the character and attributes of God. Only through scripture could we know what God is like. Additionally, things like the immortality of the soul, you could only know that through scripture. You're not going to figure that out through philosophy. Um, and so pretty much, as I said, if Aquinas married philosophy and theology, Scotus begins the divorce proceedings. And if you think about it, by the time we get to the Enlightenment period in the 1600s, 1700s, that's where philosophy and theology are completely divorced. Well, the beginning starts here. Now, Scotus's motive, I think, was right. Um, but eventually it's going to, it's really going to end up, um, I would say, undoing the, the Christendom's, um, I guess you could say, uh, influence, intellectual influence over Europe. Now, Scotus argued that against Aquinas, he argued that God's supreme attribute was not his understanding, but his will. See, Aquinas would say the supreme, under, the supreme attribute of God is his understanding. That's why the universe is rational. That's why philosophy works. That's why pagan philosophers could learn so many true things, because a chief attribute of God is understanding, and he built the universe in an understanding way. That's why it works the way it works. Scotus says, no, God's supreme attribute is not his understanding, but his will. 
The universe is not ordered as it is because reason somehow demands it as if reason's above God. It's not above God. He said, instead, the universe is the way it is for one reason and one reason alone. God willed it to be this way. Gravity does what gravity does because God willed it to do that. And the same is true of the atonement. Jesus' sacrifice is accepted by the Father for no other reason than God chose that it would be this way. It's not that reason demanded it to be this way. See, like, uh, he, he would believe that Aquinas and those who followed in his footsteps would say everything has to be proven or confirmed by reason. Christian doctrine has to be shown reasonable by reason. And he's saying no. These things are true because God says they're true. And that's the only reason they're true. Reason will never get you to that point. And so, for example, if you're going to say that, um, if you're going to say something like human reason is necessary to show that Christian doctrines are reasonable, then he's saying that everything God does is required of him by reason, as if reason's higher than him, that God has to do this because human reason says he has to do this, you know, as if reason is something that is above God. But Skoda said, no, God is above everything. He does what he does because God alone is free. And of course, this sounds very good to me. It's music to my reformed ears because we would say the same thing. God is free. Okay? The reason why reason exists as it does is because it's an, it's an attribute of God's mind. Okay? Reason exists because God is reasonable, but, not, but God's not reasonable because he has to obey reason. Okay? That, that, that's a, a key difference. Now, I don't think uh, Aquinas would say God must obey reason, but that's how Scotus was interpreting his philosophy. And so he's going to say we can only accept what God's done by faith. Not, not reason about what God had to do it this way because of this, 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 and this. No. He says God did it this way because he chose to. So his emphasis on the supremacy of God's revelation, this did lay the groundwork for a theology that was more biblical and less philosophical. In other words, I, I think you could see the seedlings of the Reformation in some of what Scotus is saying. Not in all of what he's saying, but that's going to be a key point of the reformers. Now, Scotus and Aquinas also disagreed on the Immaculate Conception, but the interesting thing is, this is where we would agree with Aquinas and not Scotus. Aquinas said Mary needed a savior. She was a sinner as well. This whole idea that she was conceived without sin so that she could be the Theotokos, the God-bearer, um, that's unnecessary. In fact, she calls God her Savior. Only sinners need a Savior. And so um, it makes no sense to push this Immaculate Conception idea. Scotus is actually going dis to disagree. And I find that interesting because Scotus is saying we don't need philosophy to build the doctrine. We just need what the Scripture says. And in this case, Aquinas is going off what the Scripture says. But then Scotus is going to say, here's why Mary was born sinless. Because uh, by God, it, it, it demonstrates God's freedom even more than if he saved her. In other words, what he would say is that um, God's free will is better expressed by preventing original sin in Mary than having to cleanse her of sin. Right. So what displays God's freedom more? If he could take a regular person and make them uh, born without original sin. And he also made the argument that, and by the way, if Christ is the second Adam, there has to be a second Eve. 
you know, to give birth to the second Adam. And so therefore there had to be a sinless woman as well. But again, it gets all messed up because Eve wasn't Adam's mom. You know, Eve was Adam's wife. And Scotus's entire argument here is depending on his reasoning abilities, because you're not going to find this from Scripture. So this is a point where he was definitely um, inconsistent. Now, you may have remembered me, or you might not have remembered, but I mentioned that when I talked about the monastic orders, the mendicant orders, that the Franciscans were really big on the Immaculate Conception, and the Dominicans weren't. And that makes sense. Scotus was a Franciscan. Aquinas was a Dominican. And just to let you know, even though the Catholic Church says the Immaculate, doctrine, immaculate Conception is Catholic doctrine, it always has been, this is infallible truth, the Roman Catholic Church did not adopt it until 1854. So that shows you this was continuously debated within the Catholic Church. And when you've got guys like Aquinas disagreeing with the Immaculate Conception, it's kind of silly for the church today to say, well, no, this is the infallible teaching of the church because your greatest theologian from your tradition did not believe in this, right? And so it's just uh, one of those inconsistencies worth pointing out. And the Eastern Orthodox and the Protestants have never accepted the idea of immaculate conception. Now, one thing about Scotus is just like Thomas's, uh, Thomas Aquinas's theology earned a name, Thomism, same thing for Scotus. It's called Scotism. You probably don't hear this one as much because people don't really think about Scotus as much today. Here's what we know him for today, the dunce cap. Because remember, his name is John Duns Scotus. And most of the time he was just called by his middle name, Duns Scotus. And the way he would articulate his ideas was intricate. It was complex. And so when you get to the next generation of Christian humanists, these were, and I'll explain what they are when we get to the Renaissance. But during the Renaissance, you have these, these thinkers that, again, are very friendly to Roman Greco philosophy. Um, and so we will call them the Christian humanists. They're going to really dislike Scotus because, one, his writings were way more complicated than they needed to be. And so they would say that's a sign of somebody that's dumb, somebody who can't explain their beliefs with brevity and clarity. They're, they're covering for their stupidity with a lot of words. That's what they would say. And so... After this, people, they started calling people they thought dumb, they called them duns, which then became our word dunce. And that's where you get the tradition of somebody sitting in the corner with a dunce cap, and you're saying, well, you're an idiot, you're a dunce. It's actually named after one of the smartest people in European history. That ends up being the irony of it. You're naming dumb people after somebody who was actually pretty stinking smart. Um, and in his own time, he did win against... Aquinas, like in, in their own generation, more people agreed with Scotus on some of these things than Aquinas. But over the course of time, it shifts. Hardly anybody is a Scotus today, but there's a lot of people who are Thomists. And so moving to the last guy, William of Ockham, you may have heard the, uh, the rule of logic or reasoning called Ockham's Razor. It's named after him. It's the idea that if you have two I guess you could say options or explanations of a problem, and one is complicated and one is simple, the simple one is far more likely to be true because it has less variables. So you always go with the, the simpler option. And, and the Occam's razor is a very useful um, tool of logic. But I would say Occam's theology is a lot more problematic. So his life dates 1285 to 1349, um, and he was born in Occam in southern England. That's where we get his name. He studied at Oxford and he joined the Franciscans. So he is not 
going to be uh, friendly to the thought of Thomism. Um, he becomes a professor at Oxford. He lectures on Lombard sentences. So again, Peter Lombard's book, this was the standard. This is what was being used. Now, while he was in Oxford, he gets summoned by the Pope to Avignon, which is France. There was a period of time where the popes moved to France for a while. And that's its whole other controversy that we'll have to talk about. Um, but he's summoned to Avignon for charges of heresy. And I mentioned back when I talked about the different orders of monks that the Franciscans broke away from Francis's original teachings, that you have to take a total vow of poverty. Instead, the Pope put it under somebody else who made it a more intellectual movement and got rid of the, the vow of poverty. So you had a group of Franciscans that rebelled against the Pope's movement in it, and they were called spiritual Franciscans, and they insisted on the way of Francis, and they insisted on the vow of poverty. Well, the church declared it heresy. William supported the spiritual Franciscans, and so he gets summoned to the papal court to be charged with heresy. Um, and he was condemned by the Pope, and before he could be executed or anything like that, he fled to Germany, where he was protected by the Holy Roman Emperor, Louis uh, the Bavarian, because Louis was an enemy of that Pope, so he protected uh, William of Ockham. And the interesting thing is, in Martin Luther's time, same thing's going to happen, but there's going to be a German prince that will protect him as well. So there's some people who end up not dying specifically because there were uh, rulers in Germany that didn't like specific popes. But anyhow, um, after uh, William is excommunicated, he's in exile living under the protection of this, this king and, um, or of, of this emperor. And because the emperor hates the pope, the emperor supported all these things William was writing against the papacy. He wrote a lot against the pope. Now, let's talk a little bit about uh, his beliefs. He was a highly influential thinker, and he also separated theology from philosophy, but he makes the breakup even bigger than Scotus did. He said reason cannot prove God's existence, where at least Scotus said it could prove an infinite being's existence, just not the Christian God. Occam would say it can't even prove that. At best, it can only show probability, that there's a probability that God exists. And he argued that our human knowledge, he was full on with Aristotle on this. He was a nominalist to the full degree. He could not stand realism. He said human knowledge is strictly limited to the experience of individual things. Like our experience is where we get knowledge. Apart from experience, we have no knowledge. So your mind can only know the things that you experience through your five senses. Therefore, he would say you cannot use unaided reason to have knowledge of God because God is not a thing in this world that you are able to sense with your five senses. Um, and, and so, yeah, that's why he's going to say apologetics and what Thomas was working on, all these arguments, they don't work. And the sad thing is he thinks he's doing Christianity a favor, but a lot of the unbelievers of the Enlightenment are going to roll with Occam's reasoning. Um, and it's, and honestly, materialists today still think this way. They're not realists. They're nominalists. They believe that all that exists is just the names we give to things that we experience. And that's Occam pushing that. Um, he was anomalous to such a point that he even denied that universals exist, that everything just comes down to what we call things subjectively by our experience. So again, not good. Um, he said that if you're going to rely on reason, all reason does is show you a spiritually dark and godless world and only divine revelation of scripture shows God to us. So think about that. 
If you take the Bible out and you just rely on what can be known with your senses and reason, then he's saying you're left with a world that looks like there's no God. But with the Bible, he's like, we believe this comes from God. This is the only reason we know there's a God. Now think about the atheists and the unbelievers that come later. They're going to say, well, hold on. Occam's on to something here. Without the Bible, this looks like a, just one pile of, of dookie. The universe, it just is. I mean, everything, hurricanes, tornadoes, Hamas, or Hamas chopping off the heads of babies and setting them on fire and stuff like that. He, he would say, if he lived today, he'd be like, look at this, right? There's, there's no evidence of God in this. It's just nature and stuff just being awful. You know, it's only because we have the Bible that we believe in God. Now, Occam believed what the Bible said for the most part. But eventually, generations after are going to say, just throw the Bible out and let's accept what he said off reason alone. There's no reason to believe in God. I think that's where nominalism ends up leading you. Now, Aquinas would take the same world he's looking at and with his, his combination of realism and nominalism, he sees God all over the place, where Occam sees God nowhere except in the Bible. I would think that uh, Aquinas made the better argument on this. But of course, when you get to the Enlightenment period and after, since Occam's philosophy plays well into the materialist's worldview, they're going to like what he says. And Occam ends up being a more influential philosopher into the modern world than Aquinas was. Like Aquinas is considered pre-modern where Occam's thinking is seen as the bridge to modernism. So anyhow, Occam argues that uh, the religious task of reason is not to prove the reasonable nature of Christian doctrine. That's not why we've been given reason. We've only been given reason so that we could understand the words that we're reading in Scripture. And if you take that to its logical conclusion, that is a repudiation of scholasticism. Because scholasticism is trying to use reason um, to make sense of Scripture and how it relates to the world and, and all that kind of stuff. That's scholasticism's project. And he says reason can't actually do that. And so there's a reason he's one of the last scholastics. Um, now, one thing about Occam that definitely is not good is he revives Pelagianism. Now, we'll call it semi-Pelagianism, but I think it's closer to call it Pelagian. See, all the scholastics before, uh, before Occam were Augustinian, not Pelagians. But Occam thought that an unbeliever could actually merit God's grace by doing his best, meaning if you don't bow down and worship Jesus, but you do your best, you'll still be saved, right? And, and so then his critics are like, wait a second, you're saying we're saved by human merit, by our works, that we don't need to be saved by grace. And he would say, well, no, no, I'm not saying that. God doesn't owe anybody salvation. Even the person who does his best, he doesn't owe salvation. But God in his freedom chose ahead of time that he would give salvation to those who did their best. And so that's his way of saying it's not by merit, but it is by merit, you know? And it's like, come on, man. <laughs> You're only convincing yourself and a few others. Um, so he placed salvation in the power of the natural human will. Therefore, he denied that original sin placed, uh, the, the original sin put our will into bondage. Our will is not in bondage to him. Um, and he insisted that predestination, even though the Bible says predestination, he insisted that um, it's based on God's foreknowledge. So he sounds like a typical Arminian these days. Well, it says predestined, but what it means is God looked down the corridor of time and saw those who would do their best. That's what Occam would say. And therefore he chose them. 
But again, that does not work with what the scriptures actually say. And so, you know, this Occam's brand of semi-Pelagianism actually shouldn't be called semi-Pelagian. It's more Pelagian. Because remember, the semi-Pelagians agreed with Augustine that our sin was in bondage, or our will was in bondage to sin, but they still believed an unbeliever had the power to make a decision to choose God's grace by faith, right? Um, whereas, whereas Occam's saying, well, they don't even need to choose God's grace. They just have to do their best. Again, that ends up being a lot closer to Pelagian or to Pelagius. Um, considering his, or concerning his view of theology versus philosophy, um, you know, well, this is actually continuing that thought. His neo-Pelagianism is actually going to get stronger in the next generation due to a German thinker named Gabriel Biel, 1420 to 1495. And he is considered the last scholastic. And if you look at his dates, he's just like 22 years before the start of the Reformation. Um, so think about it. This is the last man of scholasticism. Martin Luther's alive at this point. You know, and, and so this guy, Beale, is what Luther thinks of when he thinks of scholasticism because he's the last scholastic. And people point out that the early reformers hated scholasticism. Well, it's because they were thinking of guys like this. They weren't thinking of the guys that came before this. Um, and, and so getting back to Beale, though, uh, other schoolmen of the time did write against Pelagianism. They accused Occam of being a Pelagian. They accused Beale of being a Pelagian. And so in the time, the theology of Occam and Beale became known as Via Moderna, which means the modern way. And the other, the previous schoolmen, theirs was dubbed Via Antique, the old way. So again, now think about it. Depending on how you value tradition, you might consider, oh, that's the old way to be an insult. Well, to the original scholastics, the old way is a compliment and the modern way is an insult. But once you get to the enlightenment, it's the opposite, right? Think about it, even in your own mind, when I say, oh, that's the old way, do you naturally think that's good or do you naturally think it's inferior? If I were to say, yeah, but the modern way, because we're taught that, oh, it was the dark ages back then. They, those guys, they didn't know how to do anything right. But we, with our, our advancements, we, you know, we're the modern people. Well, <laughs> that, that's the world we live in now. But in that time, not everybody was thinking Via Moderna was a good thing. Uh, today they do. And so the point is, it's going to dominate, Via Moderna is going to dominate the last wing of scholastics right up to uh, the time of Luther, which explains why the early reformers opposed scholasticism. But it also explains why the second generation of reformers are going to love scholasticism because they're going to go back to the earlier thinkers and realize that Luther was reacting against these later thinkers. And so it's just important to understand that. Um, so when Luther is condemning the semi-Pelagianism of his day, he's condemning the thought of Beale um, in Occam. And so, yeah, and, and it's rightly so, because theology, their, their theology made salvation the fruit of the natural human will rather than the work of God's sovereign grace. And I got this quote here from Beale, you get what you pay for. See, the idea of salvation being by grace was rejected by him. No, you get what you deserve. If you deserve salvation, you get it. That's, I don't see how that guy could have been saved. Let's just put it that way. So let me conclude on scholasticism, then I'll get into the next lesson. The rise of the 
university facilitated the, the rise of a new kind of thinker, the scholastic professor. And what this did is this moved theological expertise away from the monastery and it took practical, it moved it away from the monastery and away from practical theology, like theology in the life of people. Instead, it pushed it into the ivory tower, the academy, which was separate from the church. Now, during that time, theology was the queen of the sciences, the one ring to rule them all. That's how the, univer the universities were arranged around theology. Not anymore. Thinking became more precise when they used Aristotle's five ways of knowing. Theology was now communicated through a methodology. In fact, we call it theological method. Prior to this, theology was polemical or occasional. And what I mean by that is if you read any famous work written before the scholastic era, it was written in response to something bad. Like a heretic said something, so somebody had to write something against the heretic. Or it was occasional, meaning like there was an occasion that just made it to where the writer wanted to write this. Once you get to the scholastics, they're like, we're going to write because we want to provide a systematic summary of all doctrine. We want to give the grand unifying theory of everything. And so that is, it took a method to be able to write theology this way. And that's what scholasticism contributed, and we still use that and depend upon it to this day. But it did create a slight divide between divine revelation and human reason, something that the later Enlightenment era will twist but you won't learn about that until church history part two, and I have no idea what I'm going to teach that. Um, so you'll just have to hold on to that one or buy some books. I don't know if you, if you want to know how that all goes down. But uh, also sacramental theology took its current form during the early scholastic period, and uh, scholasticism gave to the church many schoolmen that were intellectual giants. Okay, So that brings us up to where we were supposed to finish last week. Now, I want to move to today's lesson. Um, let me go all the way to the first slide. And we're talking about the peak of papal power. Now, we're going to jump back a couple hundred years and then climb back up to the 1200s. Okay, so we're going to be moving from the 11th century to the 13th century, but we're going to get to where the Pope was at the strongest. We're going to talk about the most powerful Pope ever um, in, in this uh, lesson, because you can't really understand medieval Catholicism and the medieval church if you don't understand how the popes exponentially increased their power. So let me just get right into it. At the height of the Middle Ages, the papacy will reach its zenith, and there's a lot of combined factors that will lead to this. You know, and these are things we've all learned. Monasticism, why is that important? Because it took the Pope to recognize these orders. Franciscans, Dominicans, Cisternians, the Templars, they all had to be granted charters by the Pope. And, and these were the most influential Christian societies in all of Europe. And guess who they're loyal to? The Pope because he's the one who could either grant their existence or remove their existence. The Crusades, that's huge. Who called for the Crusade? Pope, Pope Urban. Sacramentalism, I'll explain why that serves the Pope. And then, of course, scholasticism. With someone like Thomas Aquinas and Peter Lombard, these guys solidified Catholic doctrine to such a point that um, it became universal, a lot of it, in, in the Western Church. So in addition to those things, now we're going to add the efforts of three popes. Okay, three popes and the events that happened during their tenure are going to bring the Vatican power to its apex by 1215 under Innocent III. 
And I'll just quote Innocent III so you get an idea of the power that this guy had to be able to say this. Okay? First, he was the first pope to wear the, the three-tiered tiara. Uh, it was a crown that had inscribed in Latin, uh, Vicarius Filia Dei, which means Vicar of the Son of God. I'll explain exactly what that means in a minute. And he even said this. In fact, uh, I'll put it back up for the slides. He said, the moon derives her light from the sun and is in truth inferior to the sun in size and quality and position and effect. In the same way, the royal power derives its dignity from the papal authority. In other words, Holy Roman Emperor or any king of Europe, okay, I, the Pope, am like the sun and you are just like the moon. Know your place. You can only see the moon if the sun shines on it. And so that's all you are, a reflection of my light. Okay, this is a pope saying this to the most powerful secular figures in Europe. Um, he's going to preside over the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, and that marks the peak of Catholic power, is 1215. The seven sacraments become the official doctrine. Uh, transubstantiation was confirmed as the sole doctrine. Well... Let me go back to that. So the seven sacraments were accepted. They become official doctrine in the 1400s, but they're accepted at this point, that the number is seven. Um, and then transubstantiation is confirmed at this point. Even the patriarch of Constantinople, the chief rival of the Pope, was submissive to Innocent III. Now, let's not make too much out of that because I explained that during the Crusades. Remember how... Um, the Westerners actually took over Constantinople, and then they put a Western bishop as the patriarch of Constantinople. That's why the guy submitted to him. But during this guy's tenure, you could say even the greatest theologian of the East fell under his thumb. So, yeah, Pope was on, on, completely on the top during this time. Now, I do want to revisit the sacraments, because all I did was mention them last time, what the seven sacraments are, and I taught you sacramental theology, how it's like grace that the church possesses and that it gets infused to you almost like medicine. I want to just quickly go over what the seven are and how this serves papal power, okay? So if you were born and raised Catholic, this, some of this is going to sound very familiar to you. So the sacraments are baptism, confirmation, mass, confession slash penance, marriage, ordination, and last rites. Okay, so when a person is born... First sacrament is baptism. You get God's grace, medicine, being infused into forgiving you of your original sin. But we don't know if you're really a Christian yet because you haven't shown your own faith, so you grow up a little bit and then you get questioned. And if you pass the questioning process, you get confirmed, hence confirmation. That's the second sacrament. Confirmation recognizes baptism as effective. It's what now makes it effective into your uh, adulthood, and it allows you now to be actively Catholic. One of the key things to be actively Catholic is the third sacrament, which is the Mass. On a weekly basis, you attend the Mass where, remember, we talked about transubstantiation. Jesus gets re-sacrificed every week, in a sense, okay, in their theology. It's not literally his, his blood and flesh. Those are the, meeting the accidents of the cracker and the juice don't change but the substance does, the spiritual inner reality of it that you can't really taste or whatever. But the point is, it makes atonement for you every week. 
because it taps back into the original sacrifice. So baptism removes your original sin. Your regular mass removes your weekly sins. It's almost like the Day of Atonement, but every week. Um, and then after the mass, there's four more sacraments, but each person is only going to get to do three of them. You have to make your choice. Nobody gets to do all four of those remaining ones. And so the next one, everybody does have to do, though. It's called auricular, auricular confession. This is where you confess your sins to a priest, and then that priest is able to declare your forgiveness. And remember, Peter Lombard said that it's not actually the priest and his penance that forgive you. It's the Holy Spirit. But then later, the Catholic Church said, no, it's actually the priest. And so by this point, they would say it's actually the priest. So you have to confess. And then the priest has the authority to say, son or daughter, your sins are forgiven. And then they are. And then they could assign those penance to you. Now, the fifth and sixth sacrament, you have to make a choice. You're either going to get married or you're going to become a priest. Okay, it's either ordination or it's marriage. So if you feel that you have the call of God on you for ministry, then you can't marry by this time. Even though one of the qualifications for being a, a pastor or a bishop or whatever is a man of one wife. Well, they said, no, 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 I can't mean that. You're not allowed to marry uh, because marriage is only for, the, for those who uh, are not going to be clergy. Um, so if you don't marry, then you're going to receive clerical orders, ordination, if you feel that call of God on you. Now you're qualified to be a priest, a nun, or a monk. But if you don't feel the call, then you're required to get married. But your marriage is only valid if you marry another Catholic, and it's a legitimate clergy doing the marriage. Because again, marriage is a sacrament. Not just anybody can do the sacrament. The justice of the peace down in the Victorville courthouse cannot bestow upon you the grace that comes from a sacrament. Only the church could do that. That's why it has to be a priest or a bishop or some, uh, somebody like that that marries you. And then the final sacrament, I call it death baptism, <laughs> but the, the, the real phrase is last rites. It's pretty much another baptism, a sprinkling of someone who is dying or dead. Um, it's accompanied by a prescribed prayer and this is supposed to forgive remaining sins. You know, one thing that I, I found very interesting is when I was in my uh, chaplain basic training in the Army, again, we got Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, Baptists, Presbyterians. We're all in the same class. There's 170 of us. And there was a debate because we're in the middle of the war on terror. People are dying all the time. And the question is, if you're a chaplain in the field and a Catholic soldier is bleeding out and dying, but you're a Protestant and he asks you to give him the last rites, should you give them the last rites? Now, good Baptists like me were saying, I refuse because I don't believe it's a biblical thing. And, you know, and then uh, the more liberal Protestants were like, it's not about you, it's about the soldier. I'm like, no, it's about God. It's about truth. But no, it's about the soldier, you selfish Feinstonian, you know. And so, got to deal with those guys. And so then I'm thinking, well, let's let the Catholics tell us. Because in my thought, I'm like, the Catholics... They believe in apostolic succession. They don't believe we Protestants actually are part of the, the real church that way. And only the true church can give the sacraments. And this is a sacrament. So I'm thinking, let's just ask the Catholics. And then they'll tell these liberals to go pound sand. Well, the Catholics said, you know, just read them their rights. You know, give them the last rights. It doesn't matter. All that matters is that it's done. And I'm like, hold on. You guys are the ones who believe you have apostolic succession. You're undermining... We had some good, lively debates. Um, I'm like, you're undermining your own doctrine if you're saying me, somebody without your apostolic succession, is able to bestow your sacrament that belongs to the church. And they're like, 
just read them as rights. And I'm like, no. And then we just, you know, but I just found it interesting because I think 300 years ago, there's not a Catholic priest in the world that would have said that. But now some of them act like anybody could give these, some of these sacraments. So I don't know what that has to do with this class. I just felt like sharing. But anyhow, uh, getting back to the idea of, of sacramental theology, if a Catholic stops receiving the sacraments, meaning they separate themselves from the church, then he or she's no longer in a state of grace because you need this grace every week. You need the mass every week. You need the confession every week. When you die, you need that last rites. You need that stuff. And since the Roman Catholic Church is the sole institution into which God invested this grace, and that grace is the seven sacraments, then without the Roman Church, you can't get that grace. There's no salvation apart from the Roman Catholic Church. That gives teeth to Cyprian's old comment back from the early church when he said, no one can say they have God as their father if they do not know the church as their mother. Now, as Protestants, we think that's just wacky. Um, and Cyprian, when he said that, didn't mean what later Catholics would mean. But by the time you get to the Middle Ages... Um, yeah, apart from the sacraments of the church, you're in trouble. Now, that serves the Pope, you know, in, in a very obvious way. Okay, it makes sense of, out of how the Pope's going to be able to use three tools that will gain control over Catholic Europe. See, for example, if a Pope says a person is not worthy to receive the sacraments, that effectively cuts a person off from grace. It cuts them off from salvation. Now, I want you to notice, all seven sacraments except for, in my army basic training, apparently the seventh one, but let's just pretend the Catholics are being consistent. All seven sacraments require a priest. You need a priest for baptism. You need a priest for confirmation. You need a priest for uh, uh, mass and confession and ordination and marriage and last rites. And since priests and popes had the power to shut people off from the sacraments, they had power to shut people off from the grace of God um, that come through the sacraments. And so these sacraments then increase the perceived power of the papacy massively. And what I mean by that is there's three tools that the Pope has that effectively cuts people off from the sacraments. And if he uses these, you lose your salvation in the, the Catholic theology. Now, the first tool is one that we are familiar with, but it's biblically distorted here, but it's excommunication. Now, we know Matthew chapter 18 talks about excommunicating people, but it gives a process. Somebody's sinning, you go to them and you correct them alone. You try to win them back uh, to the Lord. You try to get them to repent out of love. They don't listen. Then you bring like three people and you, the three of you keep trying to, to win them back to the Lord and get them to repent of this, this sin that they refuse to repent of. And of course, we're talking about professing Christians here. Obviously, don't do this to unbelievers, but to professing Christians, if they don't listen to the three people, Jesus says, then you tell the whole church. Then the whole church says, what are you doing? You need to repent. And if they don't listen to the church, then the church excommunicates them. And Jesus says, you regard them as an unbeliever at that point. That's all that means, right? Well, by this time, the Pope could excommunicate people. It wasn't that process. If you notice the Bible, it's due process. In this sense, it's just a Pope as a kind of like a religious king saying you're out. And if the Pope excommunicates you, excommunication means you're severed from the church and you can't get the sacraments. So think about that. Think about that. You're cut off from the sacraments, therefore you're cut off from salvation. So that's, that's the first part of that. Now, the second tool 
is not in the Bible, but it takes excommunication and gives it a steroid. And it's called the interdict. Okay, the interdict has to do with the rebellious community. What if you don't want to excommunicate an individual, but you want to excommunicate an entire country? Well, the Bible doesn't really talk about that, but the Pope says, well, if I could excommunicate an individual, it stands to reason I got the same power to excommunicate a whole country or a city or whoever defies Catholic teaching. And so that's what an interdict is. It is really, uh, it puts a, 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 on an entire community, it closes the doors of the church. They cannot get anything other than baptism and last rites, but no mass, no confirmation, no um, ordination, no marriage. It puts everything to a stop. Uh, no confession. And so, yeah, that's, that's what would happen. The five internal sacraments that pretty much cover your life right now are cut off from you. And then the third tool was called the ban. This wasn't new, but it was a secular tool, ban or banishment. If a king didn't like you, you just get exiled. But I've only known France. Well, oh, you're out. The wee wee. And then you got to go somewhere else. You're not allowed back into France. Well, the Pope wanted to take this power and use it against the excommunicated. So not only if somebody gets excommunicated, now let's bring in a civil legal punishment where the magistrate also banishes them. So you're kicked out of the church and you're kicked out of your community. So it's, it's shepherd's rod and Caesar's sword coming together against you. This is, these are serious tools here. And with these tools, if they're effectively used, the popes can grow in power like you wouldn't believe. So we're going to talk about the first one, Pope Gregory VII. His uh, pope dates are 1073 to 1085. Uh, his real name is Hildebrand, and his life dates are 1015 to 1085. And he leads this reform movement among the papacy. There's this big movement where before his time, the papacy, they were pawns of the Holy Roman Empire. They had very little power. Either the Italian aristocracy controlled them or the Holy Roman Emperor controlled them. They, they became powerless. And so a number of reformers, and Hildebrand being the most famous of them, worked to reform the papacy to make it independent from secular power. That, that was the, 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 the first thing they were doing. And so he worked as a young man, increasing the power of uh, the independence of the papacy. And then one day he's going to become the Pope. Now, as he's working on all this, he saw Christian kings as agents of the devil. He's like, kings, the secular power, they work for the devil. And only, and you remember, people believe that, that the kingdom of God would be brought into the earth. How do I say this? Um, charitably. So you got post-millennialists today, right? The, the post-millennialists would argue that the church through the spreading of the gospel and the, the magistrates following the law of God will then usher in the kingdom of God and bring in this, this golden age. And there was a time where some people thought there was something to that. Hildebrand's going to say, you can't rely on the magistrates for anything. They're corrupt. They will only use the sword for evil, even in a Christian society. Only the church can bring the kingdom of God onto earth, and only the Pope can really do that because he's the head of the church. So before it used to be seen as church and state together will lead to this, but state totally corrupted and tried to rule the church just like they did in the East. And so Hinderbrand says, you know what? Forget the state. It's only the church that can lead to this. Um, 
And so he's going to help a number of popes make reforms in this direction of making the papacy independent. And then he becomes elected as pope. And one of his big victories comes at the 1059. So we've jumped back a couple centuries. Comes in 1059 at the Lateran Council in Rome, where the election of the popes was placed exclusively in the hands of the cardinals. Now, you may have heard of cardinals. This is when cardinals get invented. And I'm not talking about the football team, okay? Or is it, a, I don't know. Anyhow, the cardinals, they're not, like a lot of times you think of cardinals like, oh, they must be really powerful, super Catholic bishops. Not really. Okay, cardinals, um, they only have one power, and their power is to elect the next pope. Now, they exist, they're influential, but their only goal is to elect the next pope. Um, and so you got priests, you got bishops, you got archbishops, and then among these, the pope will have a personal staff that will be called cardinals. And the reason why this is important for what we're talking about is prior to the College of Cardinals, popes could be selected by politicians, whether it's the Italian aristocracy or the Holy Roman Emperor. This is his way of saying the church picks the pope, not the state. And so how's the church going to do it? With a council of cardinals. But who are these cardinals? They are special staff that work for the pope. So as one pope is going out, the people that he influenced most will pick his successor, right? And so it keeps it in-house. And by the way, they don't keep records of those meetings. Uh, so nobody will ever know what was said in any meeting that leads to the election of the next pope. But the, the way it was at this time, the cardinals consisted of seven bishops, 28 priests, and 18 deacons. And it took the system of selecting popes completely out of the hands of secular power. That sort of makes it independent, one step away from being independent from state power. Now, Hildebrand was crowned pope, and he took the name Gregory. So he's Pope Gregory VII, and he believed himself to be the vicar of Peter. Vicar just means you stand in the place of. So he's like, I stand in the place of Peter, the head of the church, and most popes, thought that way. Uh, Innocent's going to take it to the next level, but not Gregory. Now, not long after becoming Pope, Hildebrand, or Gregory, I'll start calling him Gregory, he published a statement known as the Dictatus Papae, which means papal decree, where he made the following arguments. I'm not going to go over like all 30 or how many of them there are. I'm going to give the ones most important. First point that I will bring up is he says the Roman church was founded by God alone. It's not founded by the state. Second, only the Roman Pope is rightly called universal. He's the only one who has authority beyond national borders. Three, only the Pope can depose and reinstate bishops. Nine, only the Pope is worthy to have his feet kissed by secular rulers. Twelve, only the Pope or the Pope can depose emperors. He can remove you as an emperor. Sixteen, papal authority is required to declare a council as ecumenical. Nineteen, pope is, the Pope is beyond the judgment of all people. He could judge you, but you can't judge him. Twenty-two, the Roman Church has never erred, and it never shall err. Twenty-three, the Roman Pope, if properly ordained, is sanctified by Peter's merit, meaning he's covered in whatever he does by Peter's excess goodness. And then twenty-six, those that break conformity with the Roman Church are no longer Catholic. Now, popes before him claimed similar things, but this is the first time it's put in writing this way, and he projected this with confidence, with force, like this is just the way it's going to be. And it is going to set the stage for increasing papal power, because other popes after are going to be like, yeah, yeah, you know, these, this is how it is. 
emperors can't get rid of us, but we could get rid of emperors. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's, it's going to definitely help them turn things around. Now, it was around this time that Western Christianity, this is just kind of like a little side note, Western Christianity started to call um, Christians on earth the church militant and those in heaven is the church triumphant. This is a movement away from Augustine because if you remember, Augustine said the church on earth is the pilgrim church and then the church in heaven is the resting church or the church at rest. But, uh, but now he's saying, no, church militant. The church is an army and, and we're going to be this new world dominating um, force in a sense. And so this aggression and the self-confidence of Pope Gregory VII, that that's what his reform movement brought to the church, where they kind of held the idea that, yeah, through the papacy, the church will conquer the world for Christ. It's the church militant, where again, Augustine would say, that's not our goal. We are pilgrims just passing through. So there's a difference here. Now, <clears throat> the papacy broke free of secular control in terms of selecting popes. But there are other problems that remained, other issues they have to wrestle away from secular power. And one of those is the appointment of bishops. And so I've mentioned the investiture controversy before, but I never really explained it. Here's where I'm explaining it, okay? You have this practice called lay investiture, and it just comes from the word invest. A king would invest, which just means appoint, a man of his own choosing as a bishop or abbot. So who's picking the, the highest Catholics of their domain? The king. And they're picking the highest monk of their domain. And then the land that was ruled by these church officials, it was important to the kings. They're like, these bishops control a lot of land. And that land falls under my country. So I get to pick that bishop and I get to twist that bishop's arm a little bit if I need to. And so they thought that the authority of these appointments was civil rather than sacred, rather than religious, just because these bishops had authority over land. Now, Pope Gregory disagreed. He said, this is unholy. The church is independent from state control because the church is universal, not states. And so how could a secular king bestow upon a bishop the bishop's ring and staff? The bishop's ring and staff are symbols of a spiritual office. The king is not a spiritual office. This is an abomination. And so he is determined to break this practice. We are going to get rid of this lay investiture. And he's going to test it against the most powerful ruler in Europe, the Holy Roman Emperor, Henry IV, whose reign dates were 1065 to 1105. He's going to do this test in 1075. So pretty much he says, Henry, you henceforth must stop this practice of investiture. This was, and so again, if he could succeed on this guy, then it's going to be accepted everywhere that kings can no longer do this. So this begins the battle between the papalists and the imperialists and who's going to rule or have a more dominant position in Western Christendom. Well, Henry was a worthy opponent because he was a gifted ruler. He was also savage and ruthless. You don't mess with him. And Pope Gregory is like, got to make an example out of somebody. So I'm going after the biggest dog. Now, Henry had a morally weak character. He was a womanizer, a lot of adulteries and stuff like that. Um, but the German bishops backed him because they believed that to have a healthy Christian society, you have to have a, a powerful ruler. So they were willing to overlook his moral failures if it meant a powerful Christian monarchy. 
Um, and that was the older Clooney vision of secular power. And I talked about the Clooney reforms a, a while ago. So Gregory disagrees, though. He's like, no, no, it is not a strong Christian monarchy that is the basis for a healthy Christian society. Look, this guy has affair after affair. No, it's a strong papacy that is the basis of a healthy Christian society. And so at first, when he commands the king, you are to stop these investitures, the German bishops sided with Henry at first. They, they actually disagreed with the Pope. They didn't want to, to make waves. And so then the emperor's like, I don't got to listen to this guy. This dude's a joker. And remember, the popes, I mean, the emperors had been, you know, twisting the arms of the popes for a while now. So he thought this was going to be no different. Um, so the emperor defies him and says, you know what? I am going to pick, I'm not only going to pick bishops, I'm going to appoint the Archbishop of Milan, which was the second most important city in Italy. He's like, an archbishop is higher than a bishop. And so pretty much he then says, I appointed this guy, Archbishop of Milan, and I'm going to call a council of bishops in Germany, and we are going to declare Hildebrand uh, uh, an imposter pope, and we're going to remove him. And so Henry sent a threatening letter. Um, and pretty much said, Gregory, you better abdicate as Pope and let them pick a new one. You're out. I'm the emperor. I have spoken. Well, Gregory responds by excommunicating Henry and publicly declares that all the Catholics in Germany are now released from loyalty to him. He's an illegitimate king. You don't have to be loyal to him. If you assassinate him, it's, you know, he's not telling them to assassinate him, but he's just saying you don't have to be loyal to him. You can rebel against him. Now, Henry's closest allies, the German bishops, switch sides quickly. They're like, whoa, this guy's got guts. He just excommunicated the king. And as the pope, he could technically remove us as bishops and we'll lose our jobs. So once they saw this, they quickly went over and said, Henry, sorry, we're going with uh, Gregory on this one. We don't want to lose our jobs. Now, the bishops had two-thirds of the land of the Holy Roman Empire and the armies were raised from the land, so this cost Henry immediately two-thirds of his army. He lost his military just by the Pope excommunicating him. And then he couldn't go to church and get sacraments. He was in trouble. And so then the German nobles, because once an emperor is weakened, the other guys who are drooling for his position, they take advantage of this opportunity and they rebel, thinking maybe we could kill him and one of us could become the next Holy Roman Emperor. So Henry now has his whole country turned against him. Just, so Gregory's gamble paid off, is what I'm saying. And so they suspend him from his imperial office. He has no effective army to fight back. Uh, and then they say, we're summoning you to a council where we're going to replace you and we're going to have the Pope at the council. So it's like ultimate defeat here. So before that council could happen, Henry journeys all the way to Italy in desperation. Pope Gregory was in a castle owned by the Countess of Tuscany. She was his political protector. He was hiding in her castle just in case Henry came with an army to kill him. You know, when he excommunicated him, he didn't know if it was going to work. You know, if the German clergy didn't go along with the Pope on this, then Henry would have had his full army. He could have marched there and killed him. But it worked. So he's in this castle. Hildebrand with his wife and kids is standing outside in the snow, barefoot. And Hildebrand makes him stand out there three days with his feet in the snow. Um, now, people look back and say, this ruthless pope, leaving this man out there, having his feet practically get frostbitten, you know, making him beg. Well, yes, but also you have to understand where Hildebrand's coming from. You know, 
he, okay, one of the guys in the castle, he was the um, Hugh the Great of Clooney. He interceded on the emperor's behalf and says, you've got to forgive him. He's repenting. He's standing out there repenting. And Hildebrand probably wouldn't have, but Hugh the Great of Clooney is a church man you kind of have to listen to. He carries a lot of weight. So Hildebrand knew, like, yeah, I know. I know. Just give me time. Because he's thinking. He says, if I restore this guy to church membership, he instantly gets to that, all that army back. He instantly gets his position back. And then what if he comes at a later date to destroy me? Because he's going to remember this. And so he's hesitating because he's thinking this could come back and bite him later. Um, but his priestly conscience gave in. So he allowed Henry into the castle. He, uh, the young emperor promised to obey the pope's demand to stop the lay investiture. And, uh, and so the pope restored him. So to a watching world, this was the greatest scene of the church defeating the state, the most powerful monarch in the world, barefoot on his knees, begging for a pope, and at the word of a pope, he's restored. That increases the power of the papacy. It just does. Now, a civil war breaks out in Germany, and Rudolf of Swabia is declared by some to be the new emperor. But uh, Henry's now restored. So he should be the emperor. The German bishops go back to siding with Henry. So he gets the two-thirds of that land and those armies. He's in a stronger position, but he doesn't want to have to fight. So he demands that the pope declare, uh, that he demands that the pope excommunicate Rudolph and, and make a, a decree in favor of Henry. Well, Gregory wavers for three years. He's like, eh, I don't know. He takes a while to make this decision. And so what happens is Henry becomes impatient in a very presumptuous way, says, I'm ordering you to excommunicate him, uh, to excommunicate Rudolph. And the Pope says, you don't order me, I excommunicate you. And so he thinks it's going to work this time like it worked last time. But the German bishops stayed on Henry's side because they said Rudolph's even worse and he's not legitimate. And so pretty much um, Henry then says, well, now that I got the German bishops on my side, he calls a council again that declares that Gregory is no longer the Pope and they replace him with, uh, with uh, uh, Gebert of Ravenna. And so at first Gregory's like, well, I could just ignore this. But the problem is Henry wins the civil war. Rudolph gets killed in battle. So now the victorious emperor's like, we're going into Italy. And he invades Italy in 1081, and in 1084, he captured Rome. So Gregory was right. By restoring this guy, he now put this guy in a position to take this revenge later. But it still ends up being a long-term victory for the papacy. Gregory locks himself away in the Roman castle of St. Angelo. He made an alliance with the Vikings or the Normans that ruled southern Italy. They came and saved him. So Gebert was on the papal throne in Rome as Pope Clement III, uh, and then he crowned Henry as Holy Roman Emperor. But as I said, the Normans then busted Gregory out from St. Angelo. But when they attacked Rome, they sacked it and killed a lot of people. So people were like, Gregory, this is your, these are your, your rescuers? And so he had no choice but to go into exile into southern Italy. He still said, I'm the real pope. Clement's like, no, I'm the pope, so you have two popes. It's just the way it worked. Um, so Henry IV won the moment. And... Uh, Gregory dies in exile, you know, so in, in one sense, he loses in his lifetime, but, but he laid the groundwork. I mean, just the fact that the, nobody's ever going to forget the scene of the king or the emperor barefoot on that cast outside that castle in the snow. And so 
There were rival popes. Some were loyal to the emperor. Some were loyal to Hildebrand. You'd have the Hildebrand pope and you'd have the emperor popes, two different popes. But eventually, Urban II, the guy who calls the first crusade, becomes the sole recognized pope. He becomes the undisputed pope because unlike the other guys, he had good character. So he won the West to himself. And then, and he was a disciple of Gregory. And then he successfully called all of Europe to a crusade, got everybody fired up. Everybody's like, yes, we can follow this pope. He's calling us to war against the Muslims. And at this point, his position was now undisputed. And he's going to try to push to forever end this investiture um, practice. And so the controversy finally gets resolved. The next few popes are trying to negotiate with Henry and then later Henry's son, and they reach a settlement in 1122. The way it all ends is that the emperor would invest a bishop or abbot with his authority over the land, but then the bishop's spiritual leader, which would be like the archbishop, would invest the bishop with his spiritual authority over the church in the same land. And this was fair because bishops were, in a sense, ruling secular land, so that authority should come from the king, but then their spiritual authority over the church should come from the papacy or the bishops under the pope. And so now that's how it worked. So again, a person could only become a bishop with the church signing off on it, but then the, the secular government had to come, on, come in and sign off on their political authority. And that's how they ended up solving this. Um, now, how does this increase papal power? It does so in a number of significant ways, at least three. Uh, first, a significant amount of power was now wrestled away from kings and placed in the hands of the church. Remember, now only the church could pick the pope with the cardinals, and now only the church itself could pick the bishops through archbishops and stuff like that. Second, the most powerful monarch was temporarily defeated by Gregory VII. He was begging barefoot in the snow. This demonstrated that the power of excommunication can work really good against an emperor, work, work really well. And then third, the College of Cardinals, as I said, made papal appointments decided by churchmen close to the current pope. Cardinals were chosen by the pope. And then archbishops and bishops were chosen by their superiors. And then priests and abbots were chosen by bishops. It kept all ecclesiastical positions now in the hands of the church. Now, in the next century, the 12th century, this next struggle is nowhere near as long or as complicated, but um, <clears throat> it's going to occur in England. Um, remember, Gregory or Hildebrand insisted that the church should be independent from the state, and that included the idea that clergy should never be subject to civil courts, that they should never be allowed to be put on trial. If they commit a crime, then church courts should adjudicate. Well, William the Conqueror took over England in 1066. He supported this. And so he established civil courts and church courts. But in his vision, the church courts were only supposed to rule on religious issues, not criminal issues. But long after he was dead, they increased these church courts, increased their power to adjudicate criminal cases when it applied to clergy. So in other words, if you, by the time you get to Henry II, and his reign dates are 1154 to 1189, the situation was intolerable. A bishop or a priest could commit murder, but the state could not try him. Only the church courts could try him, but the church courts only had the authority to give a fine. They could not execute. They could not imprison. They didn't have the money to build prisons and have prison guards. So let's say Albert's a bishop. He goes on a murder spree. 
you know, the king can't arrest him, can't have him killed. He gets sent to me, his archbishop. And I just say, well, all we can do is fine you, pay $100 and go on your merry way. And then he goes off and kills more people. And so the people in England or the, the government of England's like, this cannot be allowed to stay this way. And so what the king demanded is that the church courts, if, if, a, if a church clergy commits a crime and is found guilty, then the church courts need to defrock him, meaning remove his status, remove his ordination. That way he can now be handed over to the civil courts. Sounds fair. But the Catholics were like, no, because in their doctrine of the sacraments, ordination is permanent. And by the way, that is why when these these, uh, bishops and priests start molesting all these little boys, why does the church keep moving them from state to state? Because they don't believe in turning them over. And they don't believe in removing their ordination. This problem still exists today. It's just, you know, it's obvious in the sexual abuse scandal. So it has a long history. Well, anyway, this is going to lead to a battle between King Henry II, a battle of minds between King Henry II and the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Becket. They used to be very close friends. This is very tragic. It sets England up for a conflict. Thomas Becket, life dates 1118 to 1170, was made the highest churchman in England, the Archbishop of of Canterbury. And he and Henry, as I said, they were buddies when he was a secular guy. He always obeyed Henry in everything. Um, And again, they got along so well. But now he's the Archbishop. He has a new boss. And so when King Henry demands that, you know, the church turn these guys over to be tried by the state, Thomas is like, I know we were friends when I used to work for you, but I work for the Pope now. And no, you can't meddle in church affairs. Only the church could adjudicate crimes committed by clergy. So he fiercely opposed the king and he defended the right to be tried by church courts uh, courts alone. Now, interestingly, most bishops in England agreed with the king. They're like, you know what, Thomas, you and the pope are wrong on this. And so they were siding with the king. But then something is going to change. In a rage, the king was speaking in a hot temper. He just said out loud, he said, I just wish someone would get rid of Thomas Becket, that troublemaker. Well, four of his knights took it as a command rather than him just expressing, you know, his anger. And so they busted into his church and killed him on the altar. They actually split his skull open and his brain came out. They smashed his head in. It was a brutal, savage murder. Well, this ends up turning Um, everything against the king, because now the news spreads all over Europe. There's horror, there's outrage. um, And even the priests in England now are siding with the church, not the king after this. And the king's like, I didn't really order him to be killed. But hey, it was his guys that did it. And he's the one who at least said out loud with his mouth, I wish somebody would take him out. You know, so you got to be careful what you say, especially when you're in power. So everywhere people declared Beckett a martyr. They even ascribe power to his relics. Apparently, you had one of the best harvests in all of the Middle Ages, and they credited it to like a relic from Beckett, something that he held during his life. And so, yeah, the guy was now immensely popular. If you want to be that popular, I guess you just got to get your head smashed in. But anyhow, so this is where now Pope Alexander III Uh, His pope dates 1159 to 1181. He's now going to get involved. He's going to tell King Henry. He's going to be like, listen, you need to do public penance and you need to give up your campaign against the church courts. Otherwise, I'm going to excommunicate you. Now, this king remembers what happened to Henry II in the previous 
century, or Henry IV of the Holy Roman Empire in the, the previous century. Now, could of Henry fought back on this? Maybe. But everybody turned against him because they all think he ordered this holy man murdered. He's got no choice. So the Pope threatens excommunication. The king bows down and says, I will comply. We will not ask to try clergy for crimes again. And so this was another instance where it looked like the command of a pope brought a powerful king to his knees. This shows how powerful of a weapon excommunication was in a monarch's position. So papal power only increases because of the successful threat of excommunication. And again, the church clergy remained independent of, um, of the state. Now, the most powerful one, and I started with this guy, and I'm going to try to go as fast as I can through this. I know we started late. Hopefully you guys are willing to give me a little more time. But if not, well, I'm just going to keep talking. But anyhow, Pope Innocent III. Um, the claims and power of the papacy reached their zenith during the reign of Pope Innocent III. His pope dates 1198 to 1216. He's the most powerful pope in all of history. Now, he wasn't like Gregory where he looked down on the kings um, and saw them as evil. Uh, instead, he's like, no, they could work with us, but they work under us. So he agreed that the, the church should be over the state, not the other way around. He will become the political and spiritual head of Western Europe. Now, his real name is Lothario Conti, a member of one of Rome's oldest and most powerful aristocratic families. Uh, he studied law and theology at Rome and Bologna and Paris. So he was a pretty capable theologian and lawyer. He was a lecturer on law at Bologna, and then he was elected a cardinal deacon in 1190. And then eight years later, he was unanimously elected by the other cardinals as the pope. He is the youngest pope in history at 37 years old. Um, and so he takes the name Innocent III. Now, as a pope, he's patient, he's calculating, he figures out how to turn crazy international events and, and drama into his favor. That's just what he was able to do. And he is the first pope to take the title Vicar of Christ. Previous popes called themselves Vicar of Peter in the place of Peter. He's saying he's in the place of Christ. You know, so I want you to think about that. And all popes henceforth call themselves the Vicar of Christ. Now, his rationale... Okay, his rationale might make a little bit of sense. Well, not really. But he, he said that, listen, he's like, we're not in place of Peter. We are the successors of Peter. But we're not successors of Christ. We're in place of Christ. Meaning we stand in Jesus's position that, you know, as, as the vicar of Christ. Now, prior to his time, vicar of Christ was said of all bishops put together, not just one bishop. But again, he claims it for himself. You know, he says, I'm the vicar of God. I'm the vicar of Christ. And by the way, vicar of God was a title used for the emperors. He's like, nope, me, Pope. I'm the vicar of God and I'm the vicar of Christ. So he's making a claim of supremacy by taking this title for himself. And as I said, he rejected the title of vicar of Peter because he's like, we're successors, not vicars of him. Okay, but we are, as the Pope, the visible manifestation of Jesus on earth. Christ has authority. When you read Matthew 28, he has authority over both the church and the rulers of the nations, all authority in heaven and earth. And so if Christ has that authority and the Pope stands in his place on earth, then the Pope has Jesus' authority over the church 
and over kings. And he said, and Jesus even has authority over angels and demons. And so the Pope has authority over angels and demons. So even hell is supposed to obey the popes. I think the popes were obeying hell. You know, I think it was the, the other way around. And so the doctrinal term for this is plenitude of power. Like he's got a lot of power. And henceforth, vicar of Christ has been applied to the popes. Now, in terms of international politics, the political circumstances of Europe enabled him to claim this exalted status. The Holy Roman Emperor, you know, suddenly died in 1197, leading to now a big civil war between rival claimants. And so Germany is cast into confusion and weakness. Before this time, the Holy Roman Empire completely subjected the Pope, had the Pope surrounded. So Innocent comes into a point of the papacy when it was weak, but then... This guy dies, and he's like, all right, I'm going to take advantage of this. In this time, this is how I'm going to increase the power of the papacy to its maximum level. So he abolishes the last remaining power of the emperors in Italy, because now that they can't really fight in Italy because they're too busy fighting each other, what he does is he gets all the cities of Italy, most of them, to be loyal to the papacy. Because the most important aspect of Italy's economy had to deal with the Vatican, all the business that the Vatican did. He's like, without us, none of you guys are making money. So we need to, at least in Rome, you know, you need to give control of the city to the papacy. And the aristocracy is like, you know what, you're right. You make us richer than the Germans do. So they were now subordinate to him. From this position, he then moves that power base also to central Italy by forming alliances with the Italian cities. At this time, they had German governors. But he goes in, why are you going to listen to these Germans? They don't even know who their boss is back in Germany. But you know who your boss is here. And so he starts getting those cities loyal to him. (coughs) He then makes a deal with one of the two rival claimants for the imperial throne, Otto of Brunswick. He says, I will back your claim to the throne if you promise to never intervene in northern Italy. You never come and invade. You leave us alone. And uh, Otto also had to recognize the independence of the papal states in central Italy. Recall all those governors. That way those central states belong to the pope. And then he had to give up any remaining imperial authority over the German church, meaning even in Germany, you know, you have no say now in who becomes a bishop. And so the previous emperor, Henry VI, he destroyed papal independence by conquering both southern and northern Italy and had the popes surrounded. But now, through the situation, Innocent was able to get most of Italy independent and loyal to him and had a guy who really wanted to be the emperor. Um, he needed the pope's declaration. And so this was working to his, his favor. So he's going to get, he even gets Henry's widow. So that powerful king that really messed up the, you know, the Pope's claims in the past, right? He gets that guy's widow to give up Sicily because they were ruling Sicily. He's like, you give up Sicily um, and, uh, and that'll be fine. So pretty much how it would work is the Pope said, listen, I will guarantee your young son, Frederick, will get the crown of Sicily rather than Otto. Okay, so if Otto becomes the Holy Roman Emperor, I'll make sure Sicily's independent and your son Frederick will become at least the ruler of Sicily because, again, that would make him loyal to the Pope. She said, that's fine. I'll even place my son under your care. 
So he was kind of being raised by the Pope, and it paid off because he's eventually going to become more than the King of Sicily. The Pope's going to make him the Holy Roman Emperor, and that's going to be a guy that will be loyal to him. So in all this political maneuvering, okay, he gets the papal states, he gives them the shape that they're going to have until the 1800s. He maintained the political power of Italy, and he could function as a head of state over much of Italy, just like he could function as the head of the church. Um, he insisted on the absolute right of the popes to control the beliefs and moral conduct of the entire Catholic world. And that's a big thing because Germany's Catholic, France is Catholic, England's Catholic, Spain is Catholic. You get the point. If he could control the moral behavior of all of them, he can control the moral behavior of their kings, and he can leverage those three tools that I talked about against those kings. So that means technically, if they went against church teaching, he could depose kings and emperors. And so that's going to give him power over other states. And like Gregory, he's now going to test it. But he doesn't test it against one really powerful guy. He is going to bring down the three most powerful kings in Europe. He's going to take down the Holy Roman Emperor. He's going to take down the King of France. And he's going to take down the King of England. One guy is going to knock them all down in the course of his career like dominoes. And that's why I'm saying he's the most powerful pope in history. It is 8.35. I want to go over him knocking these three guys down. But I'm going to stop because it's 8.35. And then next time we'll talk about how Innocent subdues the Holy Roman Emperor, the, the King of France, and the King of England. And by the way, the King of England is King John, a.k.a. Prince John from Robin Hood. And uh, there's a lot of, lot of interesting stuff going, in, going on during this time. So we'll finish with Pope Innocent III next time, and then uh, we'll roll into the, the next thing after that. So if you could 